I'm standing in front of these unbelievably huge boulders. They're the rubble from the temple that existed in Jesus' day. These stones have been here ever since. What's interesting is that Jesus prophesied. He foretold that the temple would be destroyed, and it happened, just like he said in 70 AD by Rome. But what this, what this pile of rubble reminds me of is another time that God's temple was destroyed because of the disobedience of his people. It goes all the way back to the book of Nehemiah when Jerusalem had been laid to waste and God's people were enslaved, though he wanted freedom for them. They were enslaved in a pagan country, and this went on for a hundred plus years. And then a young man named Nehemiah was born. He had never been to Jerusalem, but, but he absolutely loved God's word, the text. And he knew that, that Jerusalem was the place where God's people belonged, and God had promised if people would turn back to him, God would take them back to the city. And so Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, he literally was an important official in this pagan kingdom, decided that he would be the one, if God would allow, that would rebuild Jerusalem. He began praying. And through his prayers, God changed the heart of his king, Artaxerxes, and, and actually was allowed not just to leave this kingdom where he was enslaved, but to rebuild the city. Nehemiah went back. He collected the people of God who had been idle for so long, he painted a vision of how this city that once was great could be great again. And he led them to do the work, hard work. But in a short time, in the power of God, they experienced the promise fulfilled. God brought his people back to the city. And the city was once again everything it was supposed to be. That beacon on a hill, that, that shining city, the city of God, Jerusalem. In Nehemiah's day, God loved his people and he loved Jerusalem. It was his city after all. And yet, for 140 years, both God's people and God's city laid in ruins. It was literally the mockery of the world. They were a mockery in the world. God's people messed up, desperate and dysfunctional. And doesn't it make you wonder, if God loved his people in his city so much, why did he allow it to happen? I mean, isn't this, if we're honest, a question that we ask about our world and about our lives? I mean, if God really loved this world so much, why does he allow so much devastation to be happening? If God really loves us, then why does he allow so much junk to be happening? It's an important question. And here's the answer. God loved his people and loved his city. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that God's people didn't love him. In fact, they pushed him out of their lives. 
God's city, Jerusalem, left him totally out. They decided to do life their own way, do things their own way, be on their own agenda. And since God was the only thing great about their lives and the only thing great about Jerusalem, when they pushed him out, they experienced a great fall. The result was devastating. It messed up everything. And here's what we need to know. The same is true for us. I mean, here's the reality. Leaving God out messes up our lives. It's just what happens. When you leave out God, you're leaving out the only source for true life in this world. He's the one that breathed life into us. And when you leave him out, you're messing up your lives. When you leave God out, he's the source of love and he's the source of worth and significance and purpose and value in this world. And so what you're doing when you leave him out is you're messing everything up. And that's what they did. That's what we do. It makes us dysfunctional and desperate just like they were. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's that we leave him out. It affects every area of our lives emotionally and physically and relationally and vocationally and financially leaving God out is the problem with the world and you know right that this is the original sin this is what Adam and Eve did in the beginning of time go back to the very beginning what did they do they left God out and it messed up everything it messed up their lives their kids it's messed up our lives and it's ultimately destroyed the entire world This explains it. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's not that this world was made in a bad way. It's that this world made to exist in the power, the strength, the love, the grace, the peace, the purposes of God has so pushed him out that it no longer has those things. So it explains the devastation of our lives and it explains the dysfunction of our world. So hey, if we're going to change our lives and world, what do we have to do? We have to invite God back in. We have to involve him once again in our lives. Because when you involve the one who is truly the source of life again, you can start experiencing life. He's the God who can restore all the ruin. He's the God that can redeem all the failures of our lives. But to do it, we have to invite him back in. But how do we do that? Well, I want to give you the truth this weekend and then explain it and then show how Nehemiah is the great story that gives us an example of it. Here's the truth. Prayer is the essential for involving God in our lives. Prayer is the essential for involving God in our lives. What we do when we leave God out is we stop having a conversation with him. We stop dialoguing with him. We stop listening and talking with him. We stop doing relationship with him. We stop walking with him. We push him out. Prayer is the opposite. Prayer is saying, I want to start the conversation again. I want to be in dialogue. I want to be hearing from you and sharing with you and doing life with you again. It's inviting him in. Prayer is essential to involving God in our lives. Now, if you're not careful, that truth can immediately become a turnoff. Because you see, anyone that's exposed at all to religion and spiritual environments and church and all that stuff growing up, we've heard the word prayer and the idea of prayer talked about a billion times, right? I mean, from the time we're kids and up, if we're exposed in religious environments, prayer this, prayer that, prayer this, prayer that. And you know what we've discovered? 
Prayer doesn't change nothing. I mean, it doesn't work. We, we learned all those prayers growing up, right? Like, now I lay me down to sleep. My, I pray my soul, the Lord, to keep. And by the way, if I can just give an aside, just for a second, seriously. If you're teaching your kid that prayer, you know what you're doing? Just before they pillow their head to go to sleep, you're saying, you know, kid, you could die tonight. You do know you're saying that, right? I mean, what a dysfunctional thing for parents to do. And besides that, what's the prayer mean? I mean, it's this, we, we, we read words or say words that other people wrote, and we call it prayer, and it actually has no impact in our lives at all. And we have prayer books, but they're religious things, and all this different stuff. And prayer is this little trite thing that people do, this cutesy little spiritual thing that we're supposed to do. It's one of the responsibilities of our life, but it's never made any difference. It doesn't make any difference. And so, Brad... Don't talk to me about that cute little religious thing called prayer. Talk to me about the real world and real life. Talk to me about how I can overcome my brokenness. Talk to me how I can overcome my desperation, my loneliness. Talk about how I can get out of my dysfunction and overcome my addictions and how I can get rid of the brokenness of my families and my marriages and my relationships and my life and my choices. Talk to me about real stuff. Well, you know what? I understand that people have made light of prayer and people have taught prayer in all kinds of wrong ways, but here's the reality. Prayer is the answer to the brokenness and the devastation and the desperation and the dysfunction because the problem in our life stems from the fact that we've left God out. That's where it went all wrong. That's where it broke into ruins and we need to invite him back in. And prayer is not a cute thing we read from someone else's book and someone else's writing. Prayer is not a cute couple of words that we say when we go to bed or we get up or we eat. Prayer is about being in a dialogue, a conversation, a relationship with God. When we lost that relationship, we lost life. But when we get it back, it's rebuilt and restored. Prayer is essential if we're going to ultimately involve God in our lives. This is so big, Jesus made prayer a big part of his life and teaching. Look what he said in John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. I'm the vine, you are the branches. I mean, he's the source of life, and a branch only has life if it stays in that source. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. You want to live a life that's not a mess, not dysfunctional, not desperate? You want to live a life of of purpose and significance and value? You want to bear much fruit? You've got to remain in the source of life. But apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. That's when life falls apart. When we leave God out, it messes everything up. If anyone does not remain in me... He's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, if you're not leaving me out, if you're not shutting me out, look what he says. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When we're not leaving God out, but we're involving God in our life, right in the center of this passage that's talking about remaining in me what is going on between us and God he says ask whatever you want and I'm going to hear you and I'm going to give that to you I'm going to I'm going to respond to that ask me whatever you wish and it'll be given to you of course because we're walking with him we're in conversation with him we're involved in his life prayer is the essential part of involving God in our lives it's not a cutesy little spiritual thing we're supposed to do Look at James chapter 4. I'll start with verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Your wife probably asked you husbands that this morning, you know? You know. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You want something, but you don't get it. You kill, you cover, but you cannot have what you want. So you still quarrel and fight. And then he just backs up and says, look, you're going about life the wrong way. This is what happens when you leave God out. It ruins everything. It messes up everything. It creates conflict and tension and war because you're missing what only God can give you. And so you're warring and in conflict and fighting and battling with each other. And you're still not going to get what you want. You're just going to keep quarreling and fighting. It's all you have and it's not going to get you anywhere. And then look what he says. You do not have because you do not ask God. The reality is leaving God out is what messes up and has ruined and destroyed and made dysfunctional all of our lives. But involving him can redeem it and restore it and rebuild it. You do not have because you do not ask God. Prayer is essential to involving God in our lives. It's about walking with him and conversing with him. Then he says, when you pray, when you ask... You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The proud are the people who don't need God. They can leave God out. The humble are the people who are desperate for him, who invite him in. They're the ones who pray. But he makes it very clear. The people who pray and don't experience God's involvement and restoration and redemption in their lives, it's because they're praying to use God to get their will done they're not praying to involve God in getting his will done and this is how most of us pray most of us pray this way dear God I'm rubbing the lamp now we want him to grant his wishes to our kingdom done and our kingdom come Of course you're not going to experience God because that's leaving God out again. God, I don't want what you want. I don't care about what you want. I don't want your kingdom to grow. I want my kingdom to grow. I don't want your desires done. I want my desires done. I don't want you to be lifted up. I want me to be lifted up. And I'm expecting you to grant me my three wishes. I went to church. I gave a couple of bucks. And I didn't cuss too much this week. How about it? Of course prayer is not going to work. But when you say, my life is lying in desperate ruins, it's all laid in rubble. And that's where Jerusalem was for 144 years, and people were living in the devastation of that ruined environment. And they settled with it. Said their prayers, but didn't invite God in. And then Nehemiah showed up, and everything changed because he actually invited God in. He wanted to involve God in his life. And the same can be true for us. I want to give you the example of Nehemiah. God's people and city had been a mess for some 140 years because God's people, though they said prayers, they did not pray. They chanted prayers, but they did not genuinely invite God in to clean up their mess and to redeem and restore them until Nehemiah. And the same thing goes on with us. We sometimes say prayers or don't say prayers, but in Both cases are leaving God out. True prayer involves God in redeeming us, in restoring us. Nehemiah asked God to be involved and it changed his world. He prayed. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 and then verse 11. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace to this day. The wall of Jerusalem is still broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. 140 years and there's still no wall or gates, which meant there was no city. 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. Give your servant success today. Nehemiah didn't live in Jerusalem. He had never been to Jerusalem. He was just way away. But when he heard about the devastation of this place where God's people lived, the people God loved, and where God's city was, the city that was supposed to shine with the glory of God, when he heard that it was still lying in ruins after 140 years, I mean, he just broke down. And then he got involved and he rebuilt the city. He was the catalyst that got God's people back restored and God's city back restored. And Nehemiah was successful where others failed simply because... Others had tried to rebuild and fix the problem and overcome the challenges on their own. But he prayed. He invited God into his life and into his world and it changed everything. Look at if we invite God into our lives, if we invite God into our dreams, if we invite God into our careers and our finances and our spiritual lives, here's what's going to happen. We will experience God in those things when we invite God in we'll experience his presence and his comfort and his purpose and his significance we'll experience his value and his touch we'll experience his ability to restore and rebuild and though we are has-beens we can be again because God is the God that allows failure not to be final but to become the foundation of a brand new life but to do it we have to invite God in prayer is the key essential to involving God in our lives But what's effective prayer? I mean, what's a prayer beyond now I lay me down to sleep? What's a prayer beyond what we read and say and repeat redundantly? Well, Nehemiah is the great example because Nehemiah, in a world of people who said prayers but didn't involve God, in a world of ruin and destruction, was able to be a catalyst to rebuild it. He prayed, and he prayed in a way that changed his world. And if we pray his way, the same thing can happen for us. So what's it look like? Well, effective prayer, as we learn from Nehemiah, requires a burden. I mean, just a burden. I've already read it, but let me read it again. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I mean, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I mean, so burdened was he that he really preferred to keep talking to God than to eat because he just wanted to get God involved again. You know, the reality is, without a burden, we won't go to God. Why would we? We don't need him. I mean, without a burden, I'm just like, life's going on. I mean, we're used to the rubble. In that 140 years in Jerusalem, you saw me standing by the rocks of the rubble of, of the Roman devastation of, of Jerusalem, but it was that way in Nehemiah's day, and it had been that way for 140 years. Now think about it. The people who lived there, many had been taken captive, but others had left, been left in Jerusalem. For 140 years, they're walking around the rubble, they're living in the midst of the rubble, they're climbing over the rubble, their lives are in rubble, they have no city, their economy's devastated, there are mockery in the world, and it's all that. But it was normal. So they got up, they said their prayers, they did their worship, they did their jobs, and then they went to sleep and they got up and did the same thing again. They, they lived in lives of ruin. But they weren't burdened about it and then this young guy far away gets so burdened that he goes to God and actually involves God 
in the problem and it changes everything. Without a burden, we'll never pray. Effective prayer takes a burden. You know why we don't pray more? Because we don't have a bigger burden. But the good news comes from the bad news. The bad news is when we leave God out, our life messed up and it gets to be a bigger mess and a bigger mess and a bigger mess. And the mess gets so big ultimately where it becomes a crisis, where life is falling apart, where we literally become desperate. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is that comes out of that? When it starts to get so messy that you're desperate, you start getting a burden that calls out on God. Calls out on God. I mean, what do you have? What do you have happen when a 747 filled with atheists starts going down? You have a bunch of prayer warriors. I don't believe in you, help! Because you see, all of a sudden, they're experiencing a crisis that's beyond their ability to control, that they can do nothing about. They might as well shout to the sky because that's all they can do. And they begin praying. Burden motivates prayer. And our lives, when they really get desperate, when they really start falling apart, start giving us a motivation to pray. It takes a burden to pray. But the truth is, we should have a burden in the best of times, knowing that God is the one who created those times and God is the only one who can sustain those times and if we leave him out now, the best of times will become the worst of times. It takes a burden to pray. Do you have it? If we're going to involve God in our lives, then we learn from Nehemiah. It takes more than a burden because just because atheists are shouting out to God doesn't mean they're really connecting with him. I mean, Nehemiah connected. Why? Because he had an understanding of who God really is. He had an understanding of who God is. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven and the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. I mean, in that one verse, verse 5, we see that this guy understood who God really was. He says, you are the Lord God of heaven. You're the one who governs and controls the universe. You are. He lived in a world, in fact, he served King Artaxerxes. He lived in a world where that king was the one that everyone thought was in control of the entire world, but Nehemiah knew differently. Nehemiah knew this was just a man like any other man who happened to have a position that came with power, but God is the one who governs the universe, controls the events of this world, and he was praying to that God, knowing that God was bigger than Artaxerxes. And he said, you were the great and awesome God. He worked with this king that everyone bowed down to, everyone was afraid of, everyone kind of played up to. But he says, no, you're the great and awesome God, the one who is all powerful and worthy of worship and adoration and devotion. He knew that his God was bigger than Artaxerxes. And then he says, and you're the God who keeps his covenant of love. When working with King Artaxerxes, you know what he learned? He said, this king lies. This king makes promises and breaks them. This king isn't about the good of other people. He's about the good of himself. He's building his kingdom, not others. He's going to do what's good for himself. But I'm praying to the God who keeps his promises, the God who can be counted on. He knew who he was praying to. Nehemiah knew that God could do what he couldn't do. And so he wanted God involved. Our problem is that we generally see the size of our challenge and our problem rather than the size of our God. If you've been a part of this series at all, this series called Origins, Old Testament Edition, almost every great faith story in the world is about finally there was someone who saw God as bigger than their problem. 
was true of David with Goliath. It was true of Hezekiah with Sennacherib in Assyria. It was true of Gideon with the Midianites. It's true of every one of these stories. It's true here. His God was bigger than his problem. Here's the good news, and it should motivate us to pray. God is bigger than our biggest problem. What's impossible for us is possible for him, and he's invited us to pray, to involve him in that. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Do you know what I would do if I was given the cell phone number of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg? Do you know what I'd do? Anyone want to guess? I'd call them. (laughs) Dear Brad, this is Mark. I've got so many billions, I thought you might want one of them. (laughs) Hey, Mark. You know, I'm, I'm there. I'm calling. He gives me an open door to that kind of resourcing. I'm in, aren't you? I, look it, are you? No, money's not the answer. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> I agree money's not the answer. God is, and if God ever moves Mark to give me a billion, I'm all over that. That's where I'm at. <laughs> but let me just tell you something. God's bigger than Bill and Mark. He owns it all. He's given it all. He provides it all. He provides where there is no provision. He creates something out of nothing. And God has given you his number. Isn't it sad we don't call? And the reason we don't call is simple. We don't understand who he is. We say we do, but we don't. Because if we did, what would we do? We'd call. We'd pray. That's what Nehemiah did. What's impossible for us is possible for God. If we really understand that, we'll pray. If we're going to really involve God in our lives, if we're going to pray effectively, then with Nehemiah, we have to understand that prayer demands confession of sin. It demands confession of sin. I know this is a real weird deal for people living in the 21st century in the American culture. Oh man, that sin thing. Really? Yep. And sin isn't all the horrible things we do. You know what sin is? Sin is leaving God out. And that leads to all the horrible things we do because what happens is without God, we have this desperation inside that we can't fix. And so we destroy each other trying to fix it. And it doesn't fix anything. That's what James was saying. You have not because you ask not. And the reason we can't ask is because we have sin blocking our path. We've shut God out and we have to get him back in. That takes confession. Look at Nehemiah in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. I confess. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He's saying we've broken every single law in the book. You know, there were people praying prayers of confession back then. I mean, walking in the rubble, praying prayers of confession. But they weren't praying prayers confessing that they were the problem. They were confessing that everyone else was the problem. You know how bad mankind is, God. You know how bad those other people are. Nehemiah included himself. 
He didn't play the victim, he took responsibility. You know my sin and I'm confessing it to you. I'm gonna tell you we will never pray effectively as long as we are blaming others. We will never pray effectively as long as we're claiming to be the victim. If I'm living back there, I'm like everybody else. I'm going, you know, 140 years ago, those jerks, our forefathers, sinned against God. It messed up everything. God, you've ripped me off. You're blaming me for what they did. You're, te- you're tearing apart my life for what they did. Why don't you just fix it? Why don't you just let it go? Why aren't you bigger than that? And God's saying, I'm not letting your life lie in ruins because of what they did. Your life is lying in ruins because of what you're doing. You're leaving me out just like they are. And Nehemiah came along and he said, I've left you out. My forefathers left you out. Everyone's left you out. And as a result, we're experiencing what happens when you leave God out. When you push out the only thing great about you, you're no longer experiencing greatness. We live in a world that wants to blame everyone else but ourselves. We live in a world that claims we're a victim. We're a victim. And the truth is, We're victims of our own decision to leave God out. But when we take ownership of the mess, we're driven to pray. When we finally understand, I'm the one that's blown this. I've, you know, talked to a lot of married couples. And very often, you know, married couples have problems. Not Roxanne and me, but people like you. You know, those kind of things. And Yeah, right. Um, but, But it's always, it's almost always blaming each other. She does this, he does this, she does this, he does this. And their whole life is about praying God changed them. But you know when a marriage really changes? When the two people stop saying, Lord, change them, and they start saying, Lord, change me. Nehemiah changed the prayer. Lord, I'm the mess. It drove them to pray. We don't have a burden for prayer because we don't understand that we're the problem. Look at James chapter 5 verse 16. It says, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. It's a pretty cool sentence, right? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Isn't it interesting? Our prayers aren't powerful or effective. They might be poetic. They might be a little bit dysfunctional. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my soul the Lord to keep. But they're not powerful. Why? Well, because there's there's a word in that sentence. The prayers of what kind of a person? A righteous person. Ooh, problematic. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 10. I mean, it, it says it, declares it right out loud. As it is written, there is no one righteous. There's a real big problem. If effective prayer involving God in an effective conversation, truly walking with God, experiencing all he has for us instead of leaving him out, demands righteousness, we all have a problem because it says there is none Righteous, but I know, I know what the world's like because I'm in the world and I'm part of it and I'm just like you guys. I mean, there's none righteous, God says, and a couple of us are sitting there going, yeah, I know, they're pitiful people, aren't they? And that's why God throws in the last word, three words. He says, there's none righteous, and then we're going, yeah, I know, they're really pitiful, and he goes, not even you, idiot. Not even one. 
Which means none of us have the capacity to truly include God in our lives and involve God in our lives because by leaving him out and pushing him out, we've been cast out of the garden forever. The Bible actually says the wages of sin is death and destruction and devastation. That's the penalty for it. We've, we're in a problem. So 1 John 1, 9 comes in. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There it is. You know what the first and most important prayer is? It's the prayer of confession. Where we come to God with the burden of the desperate, ruined, messed up lives we have and we come understanding that he's the one who governs the universe. He's the one we're accountable to. He's the one that can fix the problems. He's the one we've left out. And then we come and say... And I'm the problem because I've pushed you out. Confession is the great first prayer. And confession only works. In Nehemiah's day, it was looking forward to Jesus. In our day, it's looking back to Jesus. But it only works because God's son, Jesus, is the only one who ever deserved powerful and effective prayers. He was righteous. He was perfect. He was without flaw, without sin. And so you wonder why he could pray and stop storms and you wonder why he could pray and raise dead and you wonder why he could pray and heal the blind. You wonder why he could do these cool things. It was because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's what he was. But then he changed places with us. The reason he hung on a cross was because he took the place of unrighteous ones. The wages of sin is death. And he was buried and arose again so that then he could give to us righteousness so that we could pray effectively, but it starts with confession. You know why the Bible says you have to pray in Jesus' name? It's not to give you a formula for how to get what you want from God. This is how most people say, well, I prayed in Jesus' name. Which means you said those three words. Dear God, I would like a Bentley and a Rolls Royce this Christmas in Jesus' name. Prayer doesn't work. He didn't give it. He said I could have whatever I want in Jesus' name. He wasn't saying in Jesus' name. He was saying the only way you can pray and truly connect with God is by standing in the righteousness of Jesus. And where does that begin? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess we're the problems, we're to blame. We're the reason the world's a mess. Our marriages are a mess. He'll give us righteousness so we can once again connect with God. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what we need to do. And by the way, 1 John 1, 9 is written to believers already, people who follow Christ. You know what's interesting about those of us who follow Christ? When we start following him, we're involving him. But you know what we start doing over the course of our lives? We start leaving him out again. That's sin. And he says you have to keep confessing that, keep inviting him back in, keep taking ownership of that. But some of us have never invited Jesus in for the first time. It's time. Before you can ever experience what you're looking for in life, you've got to stop leaving God out. You've got to confess that you have and you've got to invite him back in. And why wouldn't that moment be now? I just really want to encourage you. Make that moment now. So before I go on and talk more about prayer, why not connect? And so I'm going to invite you just, just for a moment.
to pray with me. Would you? Would you bow with me in just a word of prayer, just for a moment? If you're a believer already, not only should you love a moment of prayer, but you need it because you know you've been leaving God out of some areas. But if you're ready to take the step for the first time, I'm going to pray and invite you to take my words and in your heart, make them your own, express faith to God. Just say, God, I confess my sin to you. I've left you out and my life is incomplete and messed up. But I know, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin and you rose again. And so I'm in faith trusting you to forgive me and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. When we invite God into our lives through confession, he gives us a brand new start. We're no longer destined by the messed up past that we've created, but now we can be a part of the unbelievable future that he wants to create for us. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. All the people then were living in the past, the ruined past of their creation, but with Nehemiah, they were able to walk into the beautiful future of God's creation, his rebuilding, his redemption because of confession. So if you just prayed with me, that's where you're at. And we want to tell you how you can know God more. And so in your programs, we always include each and every week this thing we call a connection card. Nothing spiritual about the name or the card, but it's easy to put in your hands. You can fill it out. There's a circle at the bottom you check that says you prayed to receive Jesus with me. And if you did, when you're leaving, you just throw this in the box. It's true in all of our service. Just throw this in the box and we'll send you that information to help you grow. And if you're watching on demand or online, just hit what next right there on your screen and we'll do the same thing for you. So we're involving God, confession of sin. We have a burden, we know who and understand who he is, we confess our sins. And then if we're going to really involve God, it requires knowing and believing his word. Because remember, what Adam and Eve did that led them to leave God out and mess up their lives and our world was they stopped believing his word they started believing i can do better without him than i can with him he said not to eat from this one tree but i think that's the one tree i need and they left god out if we're going to involve god again invite him into our lives again truly experience him like nehemiah did we have to start knowing his word and believing what he says in his word because remember prayer isn't about reciting lines to god Prayer is about being in conversation and the Bible is how he speaks. And we have to believe it. Look at how Nehemiah did it in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. He's talking to God. This is a prayer, right? And I love this particular sentence because he's basically saying, God, I'm pretty sure you've forgotten, but I'm going to remind you. You know, (laughs) I love this because I do this a lot. You know, God, there are a couple of promises that I think that you've forgotten. Let me turn to page seven, God. You know, that kind of a deal. And that's what he's doing. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses? Saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. Do you remember, God, you promised that if we left you out, you couldn't hold us together. We'd be scattered all around. But that's not your only promise, God. Look what else you promised. You also promised that if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. 
He's saying, you promised you'd scatter us, but if we come back to you, you've promised you'd regather us, and I'm praying for you to fulfill your promise. Do you know why Nehemiah's prayer was powerful? Because he wasn't praying like people tend to pray. He wasn't praying, this is my will, this is what I want, this is my agenda, this is what I need you to do, show up and do this, and I'll believe in you. He wasn't praying that way. He wasn't praying his desires. He was praying God's desires. He wasn't praying for what he wanted. He was praying for what God wanted. He wasn't praying for his will to be done, but God's will to be done. He was praying what God said. God, you said this, and I'm just praying that you live up to your promises. And you know what happens when we pray God's promises and praise God's desires? He hears, he answers, and he gives us what we're asking for. A lot of people are confused by the Bible because it says in 1 John 5, 4, that whoever prays according to God's will, God will hear them and give them what they're asking. They go, I keep praying, and God's not giving me what, what I'm asking for. Because you're asking for what you want. Nehemiah was asking for what God wanted. God, show up and do what you've always wanted to do with the people you love in the place that you love. Please be involved again. This is what you want, and I'm praying for you to do it. When we pray God's promises, God delivers on his promises. If we're going to truly pray in a powerful way and involve God in a way that can restore and redeem our lives, it also demands praying specifically, specific requests. You know, most of our prayer lives, and it's because we really don't believe God's going to show up and do anything, most of our prayer lives are very general. Right? Dear God, bless all the people in the world. Wow! Good stuff. It means nothing. Not Nehemiah. He jumped right in specifically. Look what he says in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of his man. Now you have to know the story, but here's what he's saying. I know that the kings of this world are the ones that destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed your people. I know that. And I know that now this king is the one who keeps Jerusalem down and your people down, destroying them. And I know why. Because they would not want Jerusalem, the city of this once great God, to be rebuilt because it might demean and diminish their kingdom. There's no way this king is going to want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But God, you promised, and I'm claiming it, And I'm asking you to let this king do what no earthly king would ever do. Let him rebuild your city. That's specific. And what did God do? He caused this king to rebuild his city. Because he's the one that governs the universe. He's the one that can change the hearts of kings and presidents. He's the one in control. It just demands a people willing to involve God through true prayer. And if we're going to pray effectively, it takes a willingness to personally sacrifice. It takes a willingness to personally sacrifice. To become a part of the solution. Look at his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. He didn't say, I want you to send someone to rebuild Jerusalem. What did he say? 
I want you to send me. He was in a comfortable place. He was serving the greatest king on the planet at the time. This guy lived in palaces. He had a cush life. But he was willing to personally sacrifice so that God's will could be done in this world. And when he was praying, he wasn't, God, keep me comfortable. Send other people to sacrifice. He was saying, God, I'm willing to sacrifice. Use me. I believe one of the reasons we don't really connect with God in prayer is because we want God to do all this work but keep our lives really simple and easy and comfortable. Now, I don't want to say, God, please, the world needs to know about you. So raise up some people who are willing to sacrifice financially to ha- make it happen. I'm not one of them. God, I, I really need you to, to rescue my marriage, so I'm, I'm not going to change. But if you could change my spouse, that would be awesome. And I don't mind if you change them or just give me a different one, but change my spouse. You know that? And we pray this way. But he was saying, I'm willing for you to change me. That's a big deal. And if we're going to ultimately experience God involved in our life, it's going to take persistence because effective prayer takes persistence. Nehemiah was persistent. Do you, you know, a lot of people think because they prayed 20 years ago, life's good today, or because they prayed yesterday, life should be good today. That's not how it works because, you see, prayer is not about saying prayers. Prayer is about having a relationship with God, walking with him, including him, involving him, having a conversation with him. I mean, can you imagine me telling Roxanne when she's complaining about what a messed up husband I am? I'm going, but I said I do 35 years ago. What else do you want? Well, why don't you say I do again today? And tomorrow, why don't you build this relationship? Why don't we walk together and talk together and grow together and converse? Why don't we do it now? And prayer is about being in relationship with God. And this isn't something that's good enough yesterday or a decade ago. It's got to be happening today. And it's not good enough to do in the morning. It's got to be something we're doing all day long. And I don't mean that you're always saying prayers. I mean... You're always connected and in conversation with God. And as things are starting to go awry, what's the first person you're talking to? Who is the first person you're talking to? God. This is how Nehemiah was. Look at Nehemiah 1.1. The word of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. By the way, how would you like your dad's name to be Hakaliah? (laughs) Someone just said, I'm going to name my son that. (laughs) Good for you. We'll just call him Hak. Uh, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. Most people read right by that. But it's important because the month of Kislev for them was late November, early December. And then Nehemiah 2.1 comes along and this is where the king's finally starting to hear his request and grant his request, I mean all that. And it says in the month of Nisan, or Nisan. That's somewhere late March, early May, that time period. Do you realize he prayed like four plus months He is involving God and working through these things for four plus months before the first door opened to the conversation. I mean, you can't. Prayer's not like I put my quarter into the slot machine, pull the handle, and woo-hoo! It's all apples. That's not what happens. I don't know how I knew that. I think one of you put it on social media or something. It's the only way I know. I play the roulette table. Um, No, I'm kidding. He prayed for four months. It takes persistence. 
Here's how I want to end. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. I just need to point out. I mean, please read the Bible with a personality, would you? That is stand-up comedy right there. If any of you lacks wisdom. What an absolute joke. If I'm God and I'm writing this, I'm saying because you know you're all a bunch of stupid idiots... Because you know you've messed up the entire world, you have no clue what you're doing, and you prove it with every choice you make. How about inviting me back in? I mean, you're ruining my great creation. That's how I'd be. But he's going, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, why? Because, see, if you're going to get wisdom when you have no wisdom, you have to involve wisdom, and that's God. If you want love when you have no love of your own, what do you have to do? You have to involve the one who is love, God. If you want power and you have no power of your own, then you go to the one who has power, the one who governs the universe, the one who created all that is, the one who can change the hearts of the kings, the hearts of people. That's who you go to. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Do you know why we leave God out? We leave God out because we don't believe inviting God in will change anything. And so what happens? We continue to make a mess out of our lives. And so the application is this. If we're going to involve God in our lives and experience restoration and redemption and him rebuilding our lives and marriages and careers and everything else about us, if we're going to experience God's involvement in our lives, we must become people who believe enough to pray. Not who believe enough to say a couple of prayers, but who believe enough to truly involve God in their lives. And when God's involved, you know what he does? He redeems, he restores, and he rebuilds. God rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem when he was invited back in and he'll do the same for you but you have to invite him why not start praying so glad you were here we'll see you next time thanks everybody